This is the Conquering Columbus podcast, and I am your co-host, Mike. Thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate all of your support. And today on the show, we've got Larry Connor joining us. And Larry is an impressive guy, to say the least. Uh, he's been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. He's flown F-5s. He's going to be the first private astronaut to uh, pilot a mission to the space station, if you can believe that. What's really interesting is how he's learned to bet on himself and continue to just press forward, which is something I think a lot of entrepreneurs, business owners, just people in general need in their lives. We've got to be able to persevere and press forward. He's very successful today, but that hasn't always been the case. There was a time where he was almost $900,000 in debt, wasn't sure what he was going to do, but he decided to bet on himself again. And that paid off really big with the Connor Group, which you'll hear about more later. He has really, really defined optimism. And, you know, you can tell in these conversations that he perseveres through any sort of adversity. Again, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24 or 7365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I am your co host, Mike, and we got the full house here today. Josh, Tim, what's going on? Not much, man. Ohio's dipped back down to 50 degrees, which you would expect because we were up to 80 for about a week straight. So, summer will probably never come. And we always start off talking about weather. So, I figured I'd let yeah, you know my feelings about it. it. Yeah, we got to keep up the weather it, talk. Uh, it's always weather talk, huh? Well, our uh, guest on the show today, he actually. That was our worst intro ever, by the way. <laughs> well, it could be, but I hope everybody out there is listening still. And our guest today, actually, though, had to check the weather before he came in because he actually flew in to uh, be with us here at the uh, Concord Columbus offices. And uh, our guest is Larry Connor. And Larry is the founder and CEO slash managing partner of the Connor Group. He's founded companies from the painting business he started in high school to technology companies and more. And then in 1991, he saw an opportunity in the real estate industry and founded the Connor Group. And today, the Connor Group manages over $3 billion in assets with a focus on luxury apartment communities. Outside of the Connor Group, Larry is a pretty busy guy. He's part of the Axio Mission One in which he'll become the first private astronaut to visit the International Space Station. He also flies an F-5 fighter jet in his spare time amongst other jets we've found out and has won multiple racing events. Larry, is it, what What exactly racing events? I was looking at the vehicles. What is the category? Sure. So I've done multiple disciplines. Formula cars is probably the most. Uh, won a couple national championships doing that, by the way, at Mid-Ohio. And then I've done sports car racing both here in the United States and overseas. Races like uh, Daytona 24 Hours, Le Mans 24 Hours. And then uh, for the last, uh, well, between 2014 and 2019, I raced off-road. 
So you're probably familiar with the Baja 500 and Baja 1000. I won the 500 twice and the 1000 twice in the trophy truck spec class. And on top of all that, he's also summited Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Rainier. And I'm sure I'm missing some other accomplishments, Larry, but we're really excited to have you here on the show today. So thanks for coming out to join us. Yeah, glad to be here. I do honestly feel like we just picked all of the cool things you could do in the world out of a book and threw <laughs> yeah. it into one intro. I think I've like, seen seven I'm, movies I'm that missing you just described. Yeah. That's the thing. I am definitely missing some. So I do feel we You to mentioned clarify. going to the bottom of the ocean at some point. Yeah, I just did. <laughs> I just did, uh, about three weeks ago, I just returned from the Mariana Trench, right. which is about 200 miles off of uh, Guam. And uh, we did three scientific dives. The first one to Challenger Deep, 36,000 feet, deepest place, any place on earth, any ocean. I did a second dive to the uh, Sariana Deep, there's only been two humans ever down there. That's 35,000 feet. And then the third dive we did two days later was to what's called a seamount. That's an extinct volcano, and that was down to uh, 25,000 feet. And uh, we went down in a submersible that Triton Submarines designed. I actually went with the founder and designer of that, uh, Patrick Lahey, who's super talented Canadian and... Uh, kind of world-renowned sub pilot. And uh, one of those dives is typically 11 or 12 hours in a titanium ball. So you're not tethered to anything. It's about five and a half feet wide, about five feet high. So if you don't know somebody, you're going to get to know them well. Right, right. And so I got to ask, because there's been conspiracy theories going around the internet about aliens in the Mariana Trench. I don't know if anybody's read about that, but there's like a serious. Well, you probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, did you see any aliens down there? Uh, I am here to attest that no aliens were spotted. No aliens were spotted. (laughs) three different uh, dives. There you go. Well, the answer has been uh, found on that one. He blinked blinked twice while he said it, though, so I'm still (laughs) suspecting. We did see, by the way, if your viewers have or listeners have uh, interest, uh, on the third dive, the deepest known fish ever discovered. It's actually been photographed by some remote control, what they call landers, uh, but has never been seen is what they call a Mariana snailfish. And so we were on the third dive. We were fortunate enough to see one at 25,000 feet down. And it looks like an eel. It's about eight or 10 inches long and luminescent. So uh, this was a really scientific-centered three different dives. The uh, mother vessel is called uh, Pressure Deep, crew of about 40. And a number of them are scientists. They've got a wet lab, dry lab. And so the scientists were like wildly excited about us spotting that. What's the pressure like at that depth? Like 16,000 pounds per cubic inch. So that would and like so, easily crush, yeah, crush so a cubic inch. Yeah, here's how it was there. explained to me. If you took 92 747s and stacked them on top of each other, that's what would be on top of our submersible. So you're about to jump in, and we want to get back into uh, covering so much more in this episode too, but this is amazingly interesting. So you're about to jump into this titanium tank with these people and go that far down deep. What What's racing through your mind at that point? Do you have any fear at all? No. You're just totally engaged and want to be a part of that experience. And what, what drives you to want to be a part of yeah, that? Yeah, so it's actually a good question, Josh. What happened a few weeks before, they actually contacted me about three or four months ago 
because of the uh, mission to the ISS and said, hey, look, we're going to do this exploration. We're trying to get some support just to cover a part of the cost. And here's the scientific thesis. Would you be interested? And I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. The more I learned, the more comfortable I got that we could do one successful dives and two safe dives. I then had the opportunity about a month before to go to Florida where Triton is based, get in their simulator. Keep in mind, I'm fortunate in that I've flown a lot of different kind of aircraft from helicopters to fighter jets. And after seeing the safety mechanisms they have built in and the redundancy, I'm like, I think we can do a super safe mission. And so, you know, and then, yeah, for me, at least, I've been fortunate. I've done a lot of different things. You kind of get focused on the process and the mission rather than, you know, other things. It seems like, Larry, that exploration is important to you and and going out and getting these new experiences and things that, you know, going, I guess, going where people haven't gone before seems to be kind of a theme for you. Is that is that accurate? And, and if so, what drives yeah, that? Yeah, so that would be accurate. And let me underscore, people say, oh, you're a thrill seeker. Absolutely not. I think I'm probably here today because I'm not. So I've always had a belief you never take unacceptable risk. And most things you can measure the risk. And if you have really good people, really good equipment, and do really good preparation, you know, you have pretty good outcomes. You guys know from wrestling in college, you know, it's not about the event. I mean, it's about all the things you did those days, weeks, and months before that create the opportunity for the right outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So the other thing is I have no interest in being a tourist. Going to Europe and going through museums and castles is not my cup of tea, but I really love research, Mm -hmm. scientific or medical, even though I'm not an expert in either field. And so like the Mariana Trench exploration gave the opportunity, the opportunity to be the first private commercial crew where, yeah, I'll be the pilot on that first all private commercial crew is a great opportunity. But more importantly, we're working closely with Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic to do what we hope to be some real groundbreaking research. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So now that we got everybody hooked and they're guaranteed not to turn this episode off, let's step back and just learn about your upbringing, like your path to where you are. What what milestones you went to OU, grow up in Ohio your whole life? Yeah, I uh, moved to Ohio when I was 10 years old. Actually moved to Columbus. I was in Columbus for about a year and a half. And then my dad got transferred to uh, Dayton and lived there ever since. But I would argue that I'm just an average guy from Ohio, kind of a middle-class background, By the way, you said OU. If you said, well, how'd you pick OU? I didn't. At the time, I was a terrible high school student. I barely got out of high school. In the state of Ohio, the one school that had to take you if you were a high school graduate was OU. And literally at orientation, they said, look to your right, look to your left. One or both of those people will not be here. The freshman flunk out rate at OU at that time. I remember we had 45, almost 5,000 freshmen incoming. Flunk out rate was north of 50% in the freshman year. By the spring, the dorm I was in was deserted. So I was reading on your bio on the website at the time, 
you know, you kind of struggled in your first year at OU, right? Until something clicked. Yeah, well, I got there and I was completely ill-prepared. That's that's why <laughs> right. I struggled. I mean, uh, write a paper, a study habits. Those were foreign concepts to me. So I was in major scramble mode to figure out how to organize myself, how to have good study habits, how to write a paper, you know, how to take notes, et cetera, et cetera. But fortunately, I got real serious real quick and did uh, really, uh, really well and then got involved in a lot of, you know, extracurricular activities. So at what point does the entrepreneurship bug bite you and how does your career start to evolve? Yeah, so really that was in high school. You know, Mike mentioned the uh, painting company that another guy and I started and by our third summer, we had employees and we had uh, people with a two-month wait to try to have us paint. And that's because we took a lot of pride. It was really good value and we had really good attention to detail and really try to serve the customer. I carried that over into OU. You guys may have been to OU. You know, it's kind of a small college town. So I figured out there was a need for a couple things. Number one is... This is 1968, 1969, 1970. You couldn't actually buy a car at OU. Now, you can walk a lot there, but some people want a car. Well, I figured out in Dayton and Cincinnati, you could find cars for 100 or 200 bucks, get a bunch of guys, drive them down there and sell them for four or 500. About the same time, I knew a fellow who knew a fellow that ran a wine distributorship. There wasn't too much wine drinking at OU back, you know, that was a party school, but they, you know, did a lot of beer and hard liquor and other things. And so I started buying all the cases of damaged wine. It was primarily just the labels from the distributor, load up all these cars, go down there and like sell them to all the fraternities and things like that. And I did a couple other things, but those were those were probably the seeds of entrepreneurship. And then you finish up your time at OU and where do you go from there? I left there and uh, I had a next door neighbor in Dayton who owned a small business. So I had a high regard for him. I, I kind of thought these people who own their own businesses, man, they take risks, they work hard and that was him. And so he told me he was kind of this cigar chomping, big barrel chested guy, college boy you don't know anything. You really want to learn something, go sell something to the public. That kind of struck a chord with me. I had always been kind of interested in cars. So I actually went to a Volkswagen dealership and sold cars for a year. And to this day, some of those fundamentals of selling, keep in mind, going to a car dealership back then, people walked on the lot thinking you were going to try to fleece them. And we weren't, we were selling really good products. So I did that for a year. Then I had an opportunity after that to get hooked up with a company that was actually Dayton-based called EF McDonald. They were the largest incentive travel company in the world, based in Dayton, Ohio, little known fact. And they did primarily Fortune 100. So for example, if Chrysler, that was one of their big accounts, wanted to do a meeting with all their European dealers in Paris, we were the people who put it on. So I spent three and a half years living and traveling all over the world, putting on uh, business meetings. I lived in North Africa and Morocco for a while in Tangiers. I lived in Mexico. I was going to like Las Vegas like 10 times a year, Far East, Africa, South America. So it was amazing. And you got to meet some incredible CEOs, chairmen of boards, things like that. So a lot of learned experience, but not a job that you would do your whole life. I mean, I would go, 
I remember I went like 112 days straight without a day off. So it's kind of a burnout deal. Morning, noon, and night. During that time, were you were you heavily focused on your level of success and where you were going to be and, and or what motivated you? And did you have any worries or were you just enjoying the ride? We didn't get paid hardly anything. So you sure weren't doing it for the money, Josh. But the life experiences, plus the people you got to meet, plus, for example, I'm 25 years old. I'm running Pontiac's new car show in Las Vegas. I have a staff of, I brought 40 people with me from headquarters, from EF McDonald's headquarters. And I had a discretionary budget of a million dollars a day. And I'm 25 years old, which, and their charter was to me, make this a phenomenal experience for all of our dealers. We moved in and out of town in a matter of six days, like 6,000 people from roughly 3,000 dealerships. So big, big opportunity, but big responsibilities. And man, it did not go well if you screwed up. And when did you, you know, from there, when did you start to get that entrepreneurship bug again? Because you're, you know, you went and sold something, then you went to the McDonald Group. And yeah, at a certain point you decide, hey, I, I want to start doing something for myself. I don't think it ever left me, Mike. I think it was part of the development process. So after about three, three and a half years, I'm like, hey, I'm done. Uh, I'm going to start my own business. And so uh, I and a friend of mine, both single from Dayton, would go out on like a Friday or Saturday night and there wasn't any good place to go and hang out. There wasn't any good bar or anything. And we're like, this sucks. I mean, you got all these people. I mean, somebody ought to build a great place that's nice, that people really want to go to and cater to kind of the 21 to 35 crowd. So there was a historical district called Burns Jackson in Dayton. It's now called the Oregon District. So we opened a place there, uh, Newcombs. We had no money and no experience outside of I had been a busboy and a dishwasher, but we didn't think that should disqualify us. And so a couple of years later, we found a bank, we found some investors. We had to get licensed as security dealers. I came to Columbus, by the way, flunked the test, had to go home, study for it, come back and take it again. And yeah, it was a huge success. Uh, we sold it a couple of years later, returned our investors 119% return after two years. So you get done with that venture. Another thing that you you really had no familiarity in, but walked in and, and had tremendous success. Um, two questions. How do you think that you were able to have success going through there, even though, I mean, you mentioned like the learning experience and when it came to sure. OU and stuff, wasn't your, wasn't your cup of tea, but yet when you bring that same application to business, you tend to have a tremendous amount of success. So how did that work out? And then where do you go afterwards? Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. And I could not have answered that at that time. I now can't. And so I would said, even though we didn't know it, we really focused on the three P's, people, plans and processes in any business you guys know in the businesses you're in if you get really good people and you got a plan and you got really good processes and then you wrap around that a culture that's really a winning culture not unlike what Ohio State has and then you don't set limitations 
You aim high, and when people tell you, well, that's impossible, you'll never be a wrestler. A wrestler, you look too damn small to me. You guys do look a little small. I thought wrestlers were bigger. Those are, those are fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> so, so and, and that's essentially uh, what we did. But we were not perfect. And by the way, if you want one illustration, sold that business, had a little bit of money, started buying some real estate, did that for a couple years, made a few mistakes, but did some things right. And then the microcomputer in 1981 came on the scene. I'm like, oh my God, this has massive potential. So I got in that in that industry. We were actually based in Orlando, Florida, even though I never moved there. And we started out retailing, selling hardware and software. Then we got into lands, local area networks. We became the largest land dealer in the state. We did that for nine years, grew the business phenomenally, very complicated, didn't really have any money. Didn't exactly know what we were doing and ultimately got crushed and did not go bankrupt, lost all of our investor money. I lost all the money that I had made in prior ventures. So I ended up at 40 years old, dead broke. I got a wife, two kids and a farm while I'm worse than broke because I also had borrowed from small banks, $900,000, pretty much on my signature. And so I was bound and determined to start over again and to pay back every dime of that 900000 And I did like four years later. And then that's when we started uh, the Connor Group in 1991. So it's interesting because I'm reminded of one of our previous guests just a couple of weeks back. He said, you know, there's a lot of risk in this, but I've never met a homeless person who said, you know, I ended up here because I was chasing my dreams and it just didn't work out. And when you hit that moment of, hey, that didn't work sure. the way I wanted it to, there's got to be a lot of thoughts running through your mind. But how did you pick yourself back up and go about chasing it again? Yeah, that's interesting for all kinds of good, solid, smart reasons. I should have doubted whether I could do it. I never doubted that I couldn't do it. I mean, the reality is, if you go back to the computer company, I remember telling someone this. Everybody said, well, you're going to end up bankrupt. Well, I knew that was the kiss of death. If you're an entrepreneur and you declare bankruptcy, you're done. I mean, it's going to be really hard. And I actually met with these bankruptcy attorneys and they said, you don't have a chance. I said to them, is there a 1% chance I can pull this off? They go, wow, hell yeah, of course there's a 1%. I said, that's all I need. And somehow I was able to liquidate the company and not go bankrupt. And the company didn't go bankrupt and I didn't. So, yeah. And you guys know, you learn far more from failing than you ever do from success. And so in my view, I got a PhD in business and a PhD in failing from that nine-year experience. And I would argue that that's the basis of a lot of our success, both in the real estate investing business, and we've actually built and developed um, two highly successful software companies. One of them we sold a couple of years ago to private equity. But again, if you want to talk about those, those aren't a straight path either. We thought we were experts in the second technology company and almost ran that thing into the ground. It's, it's interesting because when we were wrestling, we had a guy come in, his name was Chet Scott, and talked to us about optimism and the importance of being optimistic. And optimism, you know, in this definition isn't, getting up in the morning and saying, oh, it's all sunshine and rainbows and everybody's happy. But optimism is when faced with failure, how do you react? Yep. And specifically, he mentioned that, you know, the top performers that really, really 
find a way to get things done. Mm-hmm. When they fail, they don't say and look internally and say, oh, I'm just not good enough or I'm, you know, or make excuses, right? They, they look at it, they say, hey, that didn't work. I'm just going to have to do better next time. Is that resonate for you? Totally agree. And op, don't confuse optimism with being delusional. You have to face reality and then act on it. So you better start. We're really big in our culture at the Connor Group about self-accountability. Whenever you got a problem, you better start by looking at yourself. What have I done wrong? If I'm in a leadership role, why are these other people not executing? Why aren't they successful? What do I need to do to be better? Whether it's coaching, mentoring, providing them, you know, guidance, constructive, maybe critical input, but you will never outperform your own self-image. So if you don't think you can do it, you're right. If you think you can, you at least have a chance. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. So those four years come, the you ran the first business, the, the land and computer business into the ground, and you're sitting back and you're trying to figure out where do you go next? How do you even begin to uh, put together the pieces on what a game plan would look like to move forward, to pay back the $900,000 and achieve what you want to achieve? Well, by way of looking in the rear view mirror, I recognize how stupid could you have been? You had this real estate investment firm that I was starting. This is in like 1980 after we sold the bar restaurant and it was really starting to work. So I'm like, hell, this is easy. You really like investing. You like operations. Get back in the real estate investment business. So I had a game plan as I was exiting the computer business in 1990 that, hey, I'm going to try to convince someone to invest money in a business plan that I had developed and a strategy that I had developed, which was we're going to take the real estate investing rule book and we're going to tear it up. We're not going to pay any attention to what anybody does. We're not going to hire anybody from the business and we're going to build our own proprietary model. And it's worked out pretty well. And what was that model? Well, it was based upon not thinking about real estate as an investment, but rather think about it as an operating business. And that's why we migrated to apartments. And if you look at apartments, they have basically all the characteristics of an operating business. You obviously have customers, you got revenue, you got expenses, you got a physical facility, you have plans you need to do. It's not a financial transaction, right? It's not like an industrial building where, hey, you find a tenant, you do a 10-year triple net lease, and you see them in nine years when it's time for renewal. And uh, and we also look backward on what really worked, like low headcount, high productivity with people, hire the best people, really invest in people, do a tremendous amount of reward and recognition with people, provide advancement, growth path, you know, be willing to think uh, kind of creatively. Don't be trapped by what other people in the industry, in fact, ignore what everybody else is doing and totally focus on the process and what you're doing. So you guys start looking at these apartment complexes as products almost, and, and you're running a business around it. 
Um, and then you just start to pull together capital from different people that you're, you're pitching to. Was that hard at all, given the fact that you had just failed with the last business? Sure, incredibly hard. It's not impossible. I mean, if someone says, hey, what have you been doing the last eight or nine years? Oh, well, I started this computer business and we became like one of the four or five largest and say, wow, well, what's going on now? Oh, we're out of business. <laughs> so, but, right. but that's when you say, hey, look, Honesty is tremendously powerful. You say, look, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I learned. Here's what we're going to do different. And some people will take a chance. And keep in mind, our model is not unlike, Josh, what you're doing. We want to find great businesses in great locations that are significantly, not a little bit, but significantly underperforming to their potential. And they're just going to happen to be apartment communities. But it is the classic venture capital, private equity, whatever you want to call it, model. The difference is we're not just financial engineers, which a lot of those people are. Not all of them, but a lot of them. We were going to bring a lot of operational expertise, whether it's recruiting talent, training people, business plans, strategic plans, marketing, cost control, you name it. And we're going to couple that with some smart financial structuring. And so today, the Connor Group manages over $3 billion in assets. Before we get to that, how do we go from a bar to apartments to flying fighter jets? That's the story I want to hear. You want to learn more about yeah, yeah. fighter jets? Where, where, where does fighter jets fit into all the, the, those? Yeah, good question. Well, time and money. Mm -hmm. If you got some money and you got some time and you like to try unusual things, come on down and we'll let you take a whack at the thing, you know? <laughs> okay, that's what, that's what I the, assumed. I was just curious. Better get in the simulator once or twice before you hop in that jet, though. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> we'll have somebody in the front seat and you can sit in the back and-, right. and Pick up uh, your guts for- <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. How how good are you? Are you pretty G-tolerant? I yeah, mean, do you absolutely. know? Well, then you're fine because mm -hmm. we don't like to clean up inside of the fighter jet mm -hmm. after giving a ride. Believe it or not, it's actually a very good flying airplane. And it's frankly, I'd never flown fire chip. It's actually easy to fly. Here's the challenge. Stuff is happening really fast. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, normally if you're going to land an airplane, maybe you're going to land it going 100, 120 miles an hour. We're landing this airplane going, well, on final approach, we're going close to 200 miles an hour. And when you set up to do what they call a military break, you go down the runway to the end. You're not landing. You actually go toward the end or midway. You're going to break into a 4G turn. You're going to configure the airplane as you're screaming around to go downwind. And then things are happening pretty quick. So Sounds you like got, fun. got to bring the A game. Yeah. Yeah, I've flown a plane, actually. I've never taken off or landed, but we were doing a video for Shark Tank, actually, and I was in a, the smallest Cessna I've ever been in my entire life, The one of the sketchiest planes I've ever been in, and they let me, like, you know, just move the sticks when we were up in the sky. Right. So not anywhere near the same, but it was pretty fun. You know, my something that, and we were talking earlier, my dad was a fighter pilot, and he always mentioned, you know, as tough as landing is on, on land, imagine landing a fighter jet going 200 miles an hour on a carrier, on a carrier that is bouncing up and down. Oh, on yeah. the water. <laughs> and you, gotta, you have to like, grab the thing, right? Yeah, like you got to catch gun. the hook. The hook. Yep. Yeah, the hook. By the way, those guys are phenomenally talented. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I told you that my instructor is a former Marine, like your dad, a Harrier, a Super Hornet, a mm -hmm. Jockey. And all you got to do is go to YouTube 
right? And watch like yep. the ten craziest care. I mean, you need talent and you need commitment mm-hmm. and you need some confidence because otherwise, <laughs> it isn't going to go well. Every for fighter you. pilot you ever meet is the best fi- fighter pilot to ever live, mm-hmm. yeah. and that is a fact. Well, they're they're not, every one of them telling me that. Well, n- well, that's that's not completely true. They're not as good as me, right? But- <laughs> Going back to my original question, though, so the Connor Group today manages over three billion dollars in assets, which is a yeah, ton. It's of, actually over three and a half billion. Three and a half billion. Sorry, I left off a half. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a lot of growth. How has the company changed over time, and how has your role changed? Over yeah, time? so it's 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 kind of an interesting discussion, and so I'll give you an industry perspective. What everybody does is try to scale by size. So if they have ten thousand apartment units and it's worth. 2 billion, they try to get to 20,000 apartments and 4 billion or go to 60,000 or 80,000 units. Again, we don't pay attention when anybody does. We have a completely different model that we migrated to about eight years ago. And we do it by what we call transactional activity, buying and selling. So we only have three and a half billion. But for example, this year we'll do almost $2 billion between what we buy, sell, and refinance. And for anybody interested in the real estate investment world, that's where the big dollars are for you and for your investors is in the transactions, you know, selling properties and refinancing. It is not in operations. By the way, operations is the key because these things sell in a multiplier. So they're going to sell We're in the class A luxury apartment space in 15 cities around the United States, but they're going to sell at 20 to 25 times earnings. So if you can make the bottom line improve by a million dollars, you just created 20 to 25 million of additional value. So when you're talking transactionally, you're talking and you're looking at this just almost like uh, micro size, maybe micro isn't the appropriate word business transactions. So you're you're going in and where most people would look at a multiple of EBITDA and growing EBITDA and then yep. exiting at, a, at that multiple, you're just doing that with apartment complexes. Absolutely right. We do what we call, Josh, re-engineering the property. So we have a four-pronged attack and we're going to do this concurrently. We're going to improve customer satisfaction. A lot of these assets, by the way, these luxuries are owned by what they call institution owners pension funds, life companies. They generally own super nice properties. The physical facilities are generally good and they're generally really poor operators. And so we're going to improve customer satisfaction. We're going to take cost out, but even still improve customer satisfaction. And we're going to find new sources of revenue, not only just rate increases, but what we call other sources of other income. And so bottom line is in the industry, by way of comparison, you know, if you can prove the bottom line two to 5% a year in an apartment, you're really doing a good job. We won't buy an apartment community unless we think we can improve the bottom line 60% in the first 24 months. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. 
Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, okay, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. You were talking about the recipe that you guys have basically constructed for these yep. different high-end apartment complexes that you'll walk into. And, and it obviously took some time to develop that recipe. And as an aspiring entrepreneur, when I sit back and hear that story, two things pop in my head. One, if I have no background in some of these areas, all the, you talk about the four-prong approach, there's an operations, the financial. Sure. Um, there's people who spend their whole life studying these things. So you mm-hmm. walk in and say, I can do this better. Do you do that by putting a team around you? Do you do it yourself? And then did you fail at all as you were going through and trying to build that recipe? Sure. So let me start with the failure. Absolutely. You have to start with a basic premise and what we call foundational blocks or anchor points. And then you have to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So I'll give you just one real simple, okay? We're obviously huge believers in technology, own multiple technology companies, but technology is a tool. It's not an end-all be-all. So- We had a system where this is, uh, well, we still use the system today, but about 15 years ago, what we used to do is we take all the bills from vendors, suppliers, whatever, and they go to the property, not to the headquarters. They go to the property and the manager has to personally sign and prove every bill. I learned this technique from a small business owner who was super successful. Then they have to go to the area manager, district manager, and they have to approve it. And then and only then, so we have, okay, two checks along the way. Then they just go to the central, well, we don't call it headquarters. We call it the central support office. It's our job to support the field and get paid. Our head of technology, who's a real close friend of mine and who I started two of the technology businesses with, says, we can automate everything. So, I said, okay, we're going to do it. We automate that process. So rather than the bills going there, you simply get a screenshot of the bills. You click on and approve them. And then they go to the area manager. They approve them and they go. Uh, So we implemented it company-wide. Okay. 120 days later, our expenses have gone up 800,000 bucks. Whoop. That's a mistake. Right. We go right back to the manual system and the expenses come right back in line. So that's an example of being willing to try things, fail quickly, recognize it, own it, make corrections, change direction, or go back to what worked. So today, as you look kind of towards the future of the Connor Group, where do you where do you see it going? Do you want to continue to expand? Do you see technology, incorporating technology more or buying more sure. technology companies? Like what, what's the direction for the future? Yeah. So let me take those in kind of two parts. So in the real estate investment firm, uh, it's not an I game. It's a team game. We have 29 people in our senior management team. By the way, the average age is 42 years old. That's not by chance. I'll also tell you, we have a very unique thing called a partner program. We have 57 partners. Anybody in the company can be a partner. We have people in accounting. We've got people in recruiting. We actually have two grounds keepers. Those are people at the property who pick up trash who are partners. And you're a full equity partner. All of that interest came from me. So there's no shareholder dilution. And so we're building an elite group of people that 10, 20, 30 years from now, we've actually done models going out 30 years. 
So yeah, whether I'm there or not there, and by the way, you know, the second half of this year, I'm going to be kind of busy and I'm not mm -hmm. going to be around for about five months. And people say, well, aren't you worried? Completely the opposite. Number one is we've got a great team, by the way, not perfect. I'm not delusional and they're going to make mistakes. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for them to make mistakes and learn. What does being a partner um, equate to, or is that something they earn or is, yeah. they bought in financially? So, so Tim, yeah. Uh, depending upon what category you're in, you can become eligible to be a partner anywhere from three years to six years. But honestly, it's only for the elite performance, kind of the top 10%. But again, you can be in sales, service, accounting, recruiting. Uh, you name the department, you can do it. And when you become a partner, every property we buy, you end up with an ownership piece. So let's say you became a partner today. Five to seven years from now, you will make more money from your partnership ownership interest than you do your pay and bonus. Mm -hmm. So it is extremely accretive over a long period of time. What's unique about it though, it's not like tenure. Hey, you become tenured and now you don't have to necessarily do anything. Here you have, to, you have to requalify every year as a partner. And if you're a partner, not only do you have to have exceptional job performance. You have to be a role model centered around our five core values. And you have to have demonstrated that you help other people. I think it's a good way to, to have your team buy in. We were talking about that earlier. Mm -hmm. Some of, I don't know how much you want me to share, but his company was showing him models of if they succeed. And I think giving your, your team ownership not only shows them that you care, but it also gives them more incentive to succeed because mm -hmm. there's a part of it. And then if you show them the models of here, look, if you do this, like they're, they're going to be incentivized versus just getting their paycheck. So I think that's, they feel recognized for their hard work. And then you also can keep people around because if somebody performs well, someone else is going to recognize that too and oh, take them. Oh. If they're not feeling, you know, what, you know, define the relationship with the, with the boss. Like if they're not feeling appreciated, just like a relationship, mm -hmm. they're going to find someone else who's going to sweet talk them into, you know, coming to their company. So I feel like that's a, I think that's a thing that's overlooked by a lot of businesses is the how to retain. They find good people or they want good people, but they don't do the work to retain the good people. Mm -hmm. um, so I, li I like that program a lot, especially yeah. allowing, you know, like the Amazon workers, you know how Amazon, I'm not saying they did a great job, but they're at the beginning, people were able to get in, you know, warehouse workers and they made asinine amounts of money, but they, you know, were recognizing people not, you didn't have to be senior management. You could be a groundskeeper, but if you do your job well, you'll be recognized and rewarded. So. Yeah, so I, I'm important. not familiar with that program, but I, I would totally support what you're saying. Mm. In my opinion, the vast majority of private business owners make a fundamental mistake in not sharing the wealth. Number yep. one is I think it's the right thing to do. But if you don't even believe that, so here's the question. And I know we're not on television, so you can't see it. <laughs> would you rather own 100% of a pie that's five inches in diameter? Or would you rather own 70% of a pie that's 24 inches in diameter? Well, if you just visually look at it, everybody's going to say, well, hell, the 24 inch. Yeah, give me the big one. Well, that's how you do it. It's productivity and growth through other people. Mm -hmm. I don't care how talented you are personally. There's only so much you can do. You have to leverage with great other people. And when you share the wealth, guess what? 
they become truly owners. Guess what? They act and think like owners. There's a lot of self-awareness that required in that. And that's, right. I think that's a, a trait that a lot of founders, you know, the, uh, uh, if you want it done right, yeah, I'll do it myself. You have to let go of that mindset and, and trust your baby with somebody else. I think something I've experienced, that, that was a really hard realization. It took me way too long to learn, yeah. but exactly what you just described, you know, you yeah. can have this much by yourself or mm -hmm. you can involve people and, uh, and really succeed. Well, the other thing that people don't factor in is it's going to cost you more in terms of the lost productivity and finding new talent than it would have to just pony up and do what yeah. it takes to retain your good talent the first time around. Yeah, exactly. And then the the rehiring or refining or teaching mm -hmm. them the process. Reteaching, yeah, all that stuff. And like the the, the longer you keep people, the more efficient they get, the more they know the industry, it's the like, more. It's just like real estate. If you, get, if you lose a tenant, the cost to fill that again versus doing that little bit to retain them. Right. You mentioned you're going to be gone for five months. Yeah, why is that? Yeah, what, <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> Taking a little trip? So, yeah. It's a small one, right? Yeah. <laughs> small trip. Yeah. Getting in another tin can and going on an adventure. Yeah. L different, different direction. Yeah. Though. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, about seven years ago, I was reading an article about a U.S. citizen who went to Russia, teamed up with the Russians, and went to the International Space Station. And I thought, wouldn't that be unbelievable? So I started doing my own research, found my way to a company, worked with them for a few years. That did not work out. I did not give up. I'm like, okay, let's adjust and find someone else. I was fortunate three or four years ago to find my way to a startup called Axion. But it was very interesting because it was a bunch of ex-NASA people. And the guy who's the CEO, Mike Seferdini, actually ran the International Space Station for the United States. And uh, so I started talking to them. And, uh, I ended up signing with them. Uh, I was the first person. And so, yeah, I'm going with the first all civilian crew. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be the pilot. There is a commander, by the way. I mean, that's who's ultimately in charge. And, uh, next February we will launch from, uh, Cape Canaveral for a 10-day mission to the uh, ISS where we are absolutely committed to doing some hopefully important and groundbreaking research, in my case, in conjunction with Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic. And what do you look forward to the most about that trip to space? The process. So, man, you talk about being out of your comfort zone. And we start training in June. It's kind of one week a month. And then come the fall, it's full time. Mm -hmm. It's 22 weeks of training for myself and uh, the commander. And so... Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've never flown a space capsule into <laughs> outer space to the ISS. I don't and think I have either. So I think there's probably, and, and he, here's the thing. We're the f first people to do it. We got to get this right. Yeah. In my view, we have to meet or exceed the professional astronaut standards because I think NASA's done a great job. But if you really want to propel this thing to the next level, in my view, it's going to take the private sector. And I really do believe it's the next great frontier. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Yeah, really is. That's and like the thing you always talk about. You know, you're like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we could just go to space? Yeah. It, one of my favorite authors, you know, I read a lot of, I read a lot, but read some fiction. And one of my favorite authors has a phrase in it called journey before destination. And it's about, you know, you mentioned the process, right? And that really resonates with me because I think, you know, what's important is, if you're always focused on the destination, you kind of miss out on all of these things that happen on the journey. And, you know, that process, the training, the 
you know, yeah, it's going to be great to be on the space station, but even just the training and the things that you do along the way, mm -hmm. you're going to learn so much and really, really, really cool story. You also mentioned, you know, while we were talking, uh, diving with some sharks. Yes. So what made you want to get in the water with sharks? Number one. <laughs> well, it's, it's, so it's an interesting story. A good friend of mine here in Ohio, uh, who I've done some interesting things with around the world called me one day and said, Hey, I've started this free diving spearfishing in the Bahamas, man, you got to go. I go, look, I don't, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a fisherman. I don't kill things. I'm not into it. So he's pretty persistent. So he, we go on and on a couple of years later, almost to appease him. I go, okay, I'll go. So we went down to the Bahamas, pretty remote, uh, a couple other guys, really good divers, kind of teach me the basics of free diving. So no tanks. And we spear some fish, okay? We only spear any fish that we're going to eat and follow all the rules and regulations. And I was hooked. Well, if you spear a fish, and generally we're going to do it anywhere from 20 to 60 feet deep in water. So you got to go down there, chase the fish, hopefully spear the fish and bring it back to the surface. There's a blood trail. Well, those sharks are all around. Normally they'll hang off in the periphery. And so they'll come in either just to kind of check you out and see what you're doing. But my, my point to people is you live kind of in harmony or concert with them and it's not an adversarial relationship and you learn the habits of the sharks and you can tell if they're just cruising, you can tell if they're agitated. And so we've been doing this for 15, 15 years and uh, knock on wood, but we've, depending upon the particular, we generally go for about three days. We may go a day or two and never see a shark, or we may see 10 or 12 sharks in a matter of uh, half a day. So uh, we've never had anybody bitten. We have been attacked twice. Uh, once I was and once my buddy was, but in both cases, they were young adolescent reef sharks. And we went back to places where we had uh, there was blood in the water and we shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. So again, it's about using common sense. Hey everybody, we're gonna take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, Hybeck. It's actually just me and Tim in the booth because, well, Josh is on his way over to the restaurant right now. So unluckily for us, we don't get any special treatment. I don't think he's bringing us back a pizza I don't or think anything. so. I'm a little jealous. We love Hybeck. I mean, I go there all the yeah. time. Their hot honey pizza they got going right now. Yep. That's man, what I was going to say. As soon oh. as we had them on the episode, I called in before they even left and ordered it and picked it up on the way out. And it was the best. We're talking about the restaurant, but Hybeck's a lot more than just a restaurant. They just stole whiskey and gin and vodka. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, they brought in a couple of different options for us to try recently. And I really like this Midnight Cask. It's a mixture, I think, of whiskey along with a port wine. And it kind of tastes like a Manhattan, but it's like double the strength. If you haven't listened to the episode yet, listen to the episode. I mean, their story behind the organization is great too. So yeah, it's a bunch of local entrepreneurs that just have a passion for making good food and great drinks. They just launched a thing called the Whiskey Society too, which I joined. And if you really like booze, it's worth checking out. It pays for itself just in the entry fee. And then you'll get cards for drinks every month. They put on events right now. They're on Zoom, but teach you how to make drinks, tell you what to use, why you use those things. It's definitely for the whiskey enthusiast. I've enjoyed my membership so far. That's for sure. So if you guys like High Bank, if you're looking for a restaurant, somewhere to watch the game. If you're looking to put in an order for a pickup, check out High Bank, man. Their food's great. They're great people. Yeah. And we love their drinks. And get the hot honey pizza. Get the hot honey pizza. I All promise right. you will love it. All right. Now back to the show. 
Is there anything in life that you haven't done that you still want to do outside of going to space and anything in life that you want that you don't have? Yeah, Mount Everest. I had started doing some mountain climbing. I wish I had continued that because I think that would have been a really great challenge. But I also don't believe you should do things like an amateur. And so now, you know, you can hire some guiding companies and they'll drag you up the mountain. Well, I think that's just not the right way to do things. And it's probably a little bit past for me to do that. I could maybe do it, but honestly, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. By the way, other people have asked me that. And that's, that's uh, kind of the one thing that I haven't done that I probably would have liked to have done. When people want to do stuff like this, you know, everybody has like, it's like everybody has three drinks on a Friday night and they're going to go climb Mount Everest and they're going to start next week. And then reality hits them in the face and they don't do it. You've consistently followed through on these things that you want to do in your life. What has allowed you to do that? Do you, do you just wake up and, and start a plan? Like, how do you approach things? Mindset. So people have asked me, well, what do you kind of hope that maybe other people take away? I would say the following, regardless of who you are, keep in mind, I'm really not anybody special. I'm just a guy from Dayton, Ohio, but aim high. Don't set ceilings. Don't let people tell you you can't do this. You will be amazed at what you can do. Hey, you may stumble, you may fail, but get back up. If someone tells you it's impossible, as soon as you hear the word impossible, think possible and think I'm all in. And then think about who do I get who can help me on that journey? What's the plan I need to bring? And just start with some belief. And you may start small but you'll, you will actually do it. And then that'll take you to the next step. And then the next step. And uh, the journey will be really, really rewarding. And by the way, I still find times now that I'm like, oh man, I'm outside of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I've, I'm in the deep end of the pool. That's okay. Being fearful or concerned or having some doubt, that's all human. It's not that it happens. It's how you respond. That is a great place to pivot to our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. And the theme we chose for our show is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? So if you always stay inside of your comfort zone, you frankly won't do very much. You got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Partly by circumstances, partly by design, we've become really comfortable sailing into uncharted waters, whether it's technology, whether it's space, whether it's the ocean floor, whether it's going to the Himalayas. I did a first descent in the Himalayas on a river that's never been run. And my thought is if you build kind of some anchor points, a plan, like working with good people. You can do that, but at the end, you need grit, passion, and perseverance. Well, Larry, it's been great talking to you today. We really do appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us and and share your story with our listeners. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed that episode, you want to hear more interviews just like it, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. We really appreciate you tuning in every week. And this is Mike, Josh, and Tim signing off. We'll talk to you next week.